Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And this week, it's all a lie because we are too busy and important to meet in person, and so we've not yes. <laughs> and we are on Zoom. Um, so you got the first part of that right. Yes. Uh, so, what is astonishing you, friend? What's astonishing me? Well, you know, this is just a hard season for many churches and many churches are struggling, including um, our congregation. And um, I'm just astonished by the continued faithfulness and goodness of God in the midst of this long, hard struggle that we're in. And um, we're working on starting a preschool. We're our part of the city is kind of a, a childcare desert. There are lots of kids, but very few um, people, uh, schools, agencies taking care of kids during the day. And, and parents are struggling and looking for places for their kids. And I've had over the past, gosh, maybe three or four years, about three or four people come see me, people that I didn't know, asking if we were interested in starting a preschool, could pass all the inspections, it might not be worth our time. But uh, we've partnered with a group called Innovative Learning uh, to start a preschool, and the state inspections, for the most part, have been smooth sailing. They've asked us to make some minor adjustments to the building. We're doing background checks um, um, for staff and you know people in the church like me, and things are progressing in a way that is... It's step by step. It's not going fast. It's just a slow, steady progress. But as I look back, it's quite astonishing that we are, we're doing this. We're starting, our tiny little church is starting a preschool that I believe is going to be a significant ministry um, in our community because primarily this is about blessing the kids and families in our neighborhood. We believe that it's God's will for all humans to flourish. And part of that flourishing is the education and nurturing of children. And so this fits right into our mission. And we believe that the families and children coming onto our campus, that our job will be um, evangelistic to build a bridge into the life of the congregation. And of course, uh, one of the things we're already saying is that we're, we're going to be careful, have to be careful about the kind of or the way we invite people, because small churches can have a sort of um, desperation in in the invitation. It can sound something like, please come to our church. Help us save our church by coming on Sunday, right? And we really are trying to nurture this sense of not come to our church, come to Jesus' church. And what we have is not the best and fanciest programming, what we have to offer is Christ. Well, and I think, I mean, the reality is if you're, if you're just constantly doing that heart check on your, on your why, like Simon Sinek would say on your why, and like, are we reaching out to people because we see them as resources that we can plug into our institution? 
Or are we continually taking responsibility for the posture of our own hearts and saying we exist to be a non-transactional blessing to our neighbors that points to the goodness of God? And, um, you know, the invitation, the words, the opportunity can be exactly the same. And it is the the why and the spirit of the people offering it and the understanding and the sincere intention that makes all the difference. And I mean, I've said this a lot, like, ironically, (laughs) I am a person of faith and I am a person who um, trusts Jesus with my life and my only hope is in Jesus. Um, But I don't consider myself a real sort of spiritual woo-woo kind of person. Like that's not... I mean, I like, um, you know, words and actions and concrete, observable, you know, used to be a scientist. But so, you know, when people used to talk, like our actors are always talking about intention, sometimes being trained as a musician, you they would be like, talk about your intention. And I was like, this is so dumb. Like, who cares what my intention is? I either hit the note or I don't. I either pronounce it correctly or I don't. Like just, I'm sick of all this woo-woo, whatever stuff. And so I just sort of marvel at myself recognizing that the spirit with which we do things is the whole, is the whole enchilada. And then you take a step back from that and you're like, well, duh. I mean, this is a spiritual community, right? And, but I do think you know, I mean, other parts of the body of Christ have a different maybe mirror problem, but I think sometimes in the mainline church, we can just get so focused on the practical and the pragmatic, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we serve an incarnational God, um, but that we sort of think, we sort of overlook how much it matters Um why we do things and how we understand them and what our goal our goal is. So I think if the why of Deride is to say, you know, we are offering this preschool, not to save our church, we are doing this because this is a manifestation of uh, what we exist to do, which is to be embodied good news to our neighbors, then, you know, that those acts of foolish goodness are the way the kingdom comes. And without that, it just doesn't matter whether we live or die. And with that, we we really can't die. Um, so I think it's really exciting. And I mean, it's such an overwhelming process to negotiate anything with the state so that I just um, applaud you. Which is one reason why we're on Zoom today, because I was caught up in a lot of stuff today. And um a lot of schedule changes. Well, that's the first thing I'm astonished by. The second thing is um, people have probably heard on the news already. There was a shooting at a grocery store um, in a town just outside of Memphis, the town of Collierville. And um, it was at a Kroger grocery store. Uh, Last I heard, uh, one person was killed. I believe three were shot. Um, And- was it 20? Was it that many? I mean, I saw early reports and not recently okay. better information. Well, um, that story got my attention because that's the town I grew up in. Um, I went to that 
grocery store many times as a kid. And I mean, I haven't lived in that town for a number of years, but um, you know, you hear these stories and most of the time they're in places that are fairly far. Um, and this hit home for me and for a lot of members of my family. As a matter of fact, my mom told me one of her friends was on her way to the store that day and turned around because she left some coupons at home. But if she hadn't uh, um, went back home, she would have been there in the store during the shooting. And once again, um, you know, as I check out some things on social media, people are sending thoughts and prayers. And I get that that is um, a heartfelt, sincere response at a time like this. But I think as the body of Christ, we, we need to call for more. Um, we, we say we're sending thoughts and prayers as if there's nothing else we can do. There's nothing we can do to um, change gun violence, to um, change the number of guns on the street. Thoughts and prayers, great, but so much more needs to be done. And I'm, I'm just growing weary. Um, and I, I'm, it, it feels odd saying this as a pastor, but I'm, I'm growing weary of hearing people say, well, we're sending thoughts and prayers. Uh, I, Only. Couple, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I was um, lost, which <laughs> is the only reason that I have a smartphone. Is Are you talking I, spiritual or? In your no, well, car? I mean, yes, I'm often feeling spiritually <laughs> lost, but um, I was physically lost. Got it. Um, trying to go somewhere on a Saturday morning, and um, and I and I was going to say the reason I have a smartphone, which I think is destroying my brain, but it's because I have a terrible sense of direction. And whenever I got one, like eight years ago, it was because I kept. I, you know, I would print out directions and then something would happen and I would still be lost and I would show up like 30 or 40 minutes late to a meeting because of like, cause I get that lost and, but nobody, no, that is not an acceptable excuse anymore because everybody has a smartphone and you can follow directions. And so I just was like, I'm going to have to get a smartphone because I am destroying relationships. Cause I have a terrible sense of direction and get lost. So I have a smartphone. So I rarely get lost anymore, but I still manage to do it because I'm special. And I was driving somewhere on a Saturday morning and I got lost and I had to get off the highway and go back in the other direction, like down, like at the end of 277, like by Wilkerson Boulevard. And so I pulled into um, a, a place, a building with a parking lot so I could turn around. And then I, I realized that I was at a, um, like a gun, a shooting range. Um, that was this really nice building with very like well-designed attractive signage. And like people are walking into this building with like bags on their shoulders. And I'm like, I feel very uncomfortable because I'm in this parking lot with people who like obviously have guns are going there to shoot guns. So these people walking around me have guns and it just um, struck me that it's Saturday morning and often on Saturday morning when I get turned around or lost, um, I will pass um, people demonstrating outside of um, clinics that provide abortions. And that is a very common thing for pro-life 
Christians to do on a Saturday morning. And it just really struck me how interesting it is that for pro-life, the pro-life Christian movement in this country, like to protest at a healthcare clinic that provides abortion is like a matter of conscience and you're really not pro-life unless you've gone and done that. Um, but how like strange and what anathema it would be for pro-life Christians to protest outside of a gun range, right? And just how interesting that is that, you know, and if you said to a bunch of believers, you know, why aren't we as pro-life people, why aren't we protesting outside of these gun ranges where people are learning to shoot, to kill? And, you know, I mean, I imagine, I know what I would hear, which is like, it's a right, <laughs> like, who are you to take away? I mean, it would be the language that is employed, um, you know, by people who are pro-choice who'd say like, reproductive health services are the rights of bodily autonomy for a woman. And, and, you know, the, the counter argument within the pro-life movement is, you know, well, what about the rights of the unborn child? And I just think, I mean, it's just so interesting. I mean, just that thought of like, what would happen? Like, what would the reaction of the church be <laughs> if you or I you know, showed up at that gun range on a sun Saturday morning with signs declaring that we were pro-life and wanting it to be shut down and just like the vitriol and hatred and just, you know, and, you know, I have um, complicated and nuanced feelings about abortion. Um, and so, but it's just interesting how there's no, I mean, other than, I mean, I, I mean, there are people talking about gun control, but very few talking about that within the context of the Christian community, save, say Shane Claiborne, I think is one person I know of. I'm sure there are more who is doing, you know, work in a group of, you know, beating guns into garden tools. But I mean, it's just interesting to me how comfortable we are and how in the pocket the body of Christ is with the violence industry, which is um, gun protection and uh, gun guns and how we say like, this is our right to protect our bodies. And yet how um, offended we are when women use that same language. You know, it's just a very interesting, I, I, I was very, um, you know, because it just seems to me that Jesus's language around nonviolence is so clear. And I do think that it is applicable when it comes to the lives of the unborn. I, I do, um, but it is certainly much clearly <laughs> more applicable to the lives of people who are born and even the lives of people who threaten bodily harm or death to to the Christian, right? Because Jesus obviously, you know, in the garden is saying, put your, you know, put your sword away and those who live by the sword die by the sword. And I mean, I think that's what we, you know, in guns we trust here in America and what we are seeing is just the deep truth of, I mean, I just feel like all the time lately things happen and I'm like, oh, I read about that in scripture. <laughs> like, I mean, I think what we're seeing is we, we live by guns here. We live by violence. And so violence is destroying us. And we 
act like surprised, like we can't understand it. And I'm like, no, this is, this is exactly the truth that scripture revealed to us. I mean, and the weapon of choice in Jesus' day was swords and spears, but the, but the concept is the same. I was on the highway earlier today and uh, was behind a large SUV and on their back windshield, they had this um, sticker, uh, picture decal of the Grim Reaper. And it stretched from the top to the bottom of the windshield. It was very clear. It was huge. And I thought, man, we, we really embrace a culture of death. Um, in this society. And I started wondering 100, 200, 300 years from now, when people look back at our time, will they say, you know, how ironic, how, how could they not see in this culture that prizes youth and beauty also has this culture of death? Um, yeah. And I mean, I mean, I think it's also helps me really understand what you know, all, all of that repetition in the Hebrew Bible in first and second Samuel and in the Chronicles of the Kings and first Kings and second Kings. And, you know, just this constant refrain about, you know, was this leader faithful or not faithful? And oftentimes the answer is they just were flat up unfaithful, but, but sometimes it's like, well, they were faithful. They, they brought the people back to the covenant of God, but they didn't tear down the Asherath poles and, you know, the shrines yes. to Baal. And, and it's this indictment of the people of God, the chosen people, the Israelites and this, and it's never, I mean, it's, it's never that the historian, the chronicler or the prophet is saying, nobody here is worshiping God anymore. That's never the problem. It's always, you know, God and. So you, you're still worshiping Yahweh and you're just also worshiping Asherath and you're also worshiping Baal um, and you're also worshiping Marduk. And it's this like here now, are we a Christian nation? I mean, I think the terrifying truth is like, I mean, yes, like the, the, the majority of people who claim belief in Jesus, I think are sincere, um, much in the way that the Israelites sincerely understood themselves to be the chosen people and the promised holders and, and, you know, worshiped Yahweh sincerely. They just also worshiped at these cults of violence and power and fertility. And, you know, that's what I see here. Like Americans love Jesus and they also really um, love violence and they also really love power and they also really love wealth and uh, whiteness. And this is like, I, I mean, it's, I mean, that's why like the older I grow, the more deeply I experience scripture as holy and true, because I just continue to see how um, how looking at scripture helps me understand what's happening right right now not in like a nostradamus predicting the future way but just in saying like oh this is how the human heart turns away from god or gets paralyzed by fear and then helps me understand as a person who is called to serve um and called to preach like oh here's how we need to keep pointing back that like this isn't this isn't unique this isn't new this isn't 
you know, the worst season that's ever been seen under the sun. Like this is a very predictable pattern and um, God has given us remedies and we need to be um, serious about applying them because what we have going on here is not cute. (laughs) Um, That's good. Well, what's astonishing you? Well, um, I, I was out of town last week. So have been a step removed from my faith community. Um, And we've been on a little bit of COVID quarantine. So everything is a little topsy-turvy in terms of seeing what's happening directly um, locally around me, which is always the goal of astonishment is to be looking at not what's happening out there or somewhere else, but just what is God doing? Um, But I just, I don't have that today. So I am choosing to share with you what I'm astonished by that's happening out there somewhere else um, in a bad way. And have you heard about this, um, this artist, this brilliant artist who has won uh, Western civilization and capitalism um, in Sweden? He um was contracted with a museum, I think in, I don't know, I'm going to get my Slavic countries confused, but um, Denmark maybe. Um, and they they gave him, it's kroners. It was like $80,000 to do this art installation. That was like a reboot of a previous one he'd done about like art and money. And he was supposed to be redoing it. And um, he sent the final products to them and they opened the crate and the frames were empty and he titled the art take the money and run (laughs) wow they are um you know and the museum board is like yeah yeah but really give us our money back (laughs) and he's like no 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 no. it's only art if i keep the money and i just um i mean i don't understand art clearly but I just, I, 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 I mean, it's one of, sometimes you read something, I know, just like insight to a preacher's mind. I'm like, this is going to be in a million sermons. And I don't know how yet, <laughs> like, I'm not even sure what I think the significance of that is. Cause part of me is like, yeah, if the point of art is to reveal something to us about how we live and who we are and the nature of our society, then, then yeah, it's brilliant. Like he has, and he deserves his money. And I also just think it's just such a, it's just such a painfully true indictment of our culture and particularly Western quote, first world civilization culture like it it just is um yeah i i think yeah that's that's about it like you're right it's denmark i pulled it up online and um the cnn website has this picture of a woman she's she's um her head is slightly tilted to the right as if she's studying this work but it's just this um um tan frame with an empty white, uh, almost looks like poster board uh, within the frame. And um, yeah, take the money and run. Mm-hmm. And I just, 
I don't know. Like, I mean, if you want to get really meta on it about it, or, or I mean, I just think white supremacy culture is so much about elitism and so much about, you know, certain people getting to be gatekeepers and deciders of what is worthy and what is unworthy. And, you know, we've talked before about the phenomenon of like people pulling down six figure salaries to be social justice warriors. And um, I just kind of don't, you know, I don't feel sorry for the museum. Um, and I do think like, yeah, that's what it is. Like eventually you buy into this cultural world. And even when you reach the pinnacle, I mean, it hurts other people, but eventually it comes back to hurt you too. See, this is the problem because COVID is happening and my Mama. child is here and Mama? yes. Can I watch a, can I, can I get a treat? Yes. I need you not to come in here again. Okay. Okay. Shut the door. Okay. So also mother. So great. So great. So that's it. Take the money and run. That's what's astonishing me this week. Hmm. This is, this is us. Is that a, is that a metaphor for whiteness? I mean, I suppose it could be. <laughs> I mean, I just, um, I think, well, okay, I'll take a step deeper. One of the things that I'm reflecting on now after a distance of more than 20 years was um, my undergraduate degree. Um, I always feel like it's so obnoxious. So I studied biology and I studied music and I it's dumb to say both of those at the same time, except that I talk about one of them one time and another of them another time. And I'm afraid someone is gonna be like, wait a minute, she's lying. So anyway, <laughs> um, I was in a, a school of music, which was basically functioned like a conservatory. And it was a miserable experience for me. And part of that is just because I'm not a good musician. So that, <laughs> like, let me just be clear. Um, I really wasn't good enough to be there. But the other reason, like looking back now, I just didn't, I didn't question any of the context or the constructs that we were um you know, that, that we were enmeshed in. And so it really was just explicitly like there is real music and then like everything else and real music is the music that certain people deem worthy and everything else is kind of like papsed for the masses. And it's like embarrassing and a sign of stupidity if you like it. Um, and we were there to learn real music and, you know, just a regular, and it was, you know, definitely a scarcity construct and definitely all about elitism and definitely, you know, the idea that something would be popular or accessible, like these two qualities were definitive proof that it wasn't good, right? Like, so something that was good had to be something that was only you know, that you would only like if you had several levels of advanced degrees and that you could only understand if you, you know, so I just, and at the time, you know, I went through that and I was like, oh, okay. Like, okay. <laughs> so like, I guess um, I'm no good. And I guess like I'm stupid and I don't like good music. And I get, you know, I just really, you know, when you, when you walk into an institution and they say to you, you know, we're here to form you and here's, you know, here's what, 
um, education and intelligent look look like and you're 20 whatever and you're 18 you just sort of like nod your head and and try to jump those fences right and so I mean yeah I think um this this idea of these elite institutions who on the one hand you know are sometimes valuable um voices uh, um and and a, a social cons you know, okay. for social change and a social cons, um, conscience. And I think the original piece that he was supposed to be redoing was at one point he was doing a piece on like different income levels and they had commissioned him to put like the actual money that different occupations earned in Sweden, Denmark, where was it? I can't remember. Denmark. But they, and they, and so you could see like, oh, this is how much space it takes up to put a police officer's annual salary versus this is how much space it takes up to do a hedge fund manager's salary or whatever. And so it was this visual representation of the inequality in the, in the country. And I mean, like that's not unhelpful, um, but also it's still this elite institution where only certain people have, I mean, it's just an interesting sort of, um, look at how um, messy and nuanced all of, I mean, whatever all of life is, I suppose, ultimately. But yeah, I just think it's kind of funny that the elite institution that is is there to to tell people, here's how you need to think about your money and and here and then they got, scammed and the artist is like yeah I'm trying to make a living so so what <laughs> like you're an institution with a lot of money and I'm a poor artist and you know I took what I needed and that's art and I I don't know I mean I like pretty pictures but what I learned in college is I have bad taste and so I can't appreciate real art so I I think it's 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 a lot yeah, I'm gonna to have to think about that story some more because it's um that's that's fascinating to me. Well, we're gonna use it. It's just yeah. a matter of what yeah. we're gonna use it for for sure. So uh what are you thinking about? Well <laughs> okay, I'll just I know what you're gonna say. And the transition now that I'm thickering, we're just talking about like what makes something good art and what makes something worthy. And now we're, we're gonna, gonna talk about common every day listen this is not like this is where we're going to reveal that we do not have good taste listen, we are not absolutely. intellectuals we are not sophisticated people so last week saw the return of one of my favorite guilty pleasures which is the television show survivor survivor 41 started last week and um and if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that this is, there's not a lot of cultural experiences that Yolanda and I agree on. Like the overlap is one. The diagram is very small, <laughs> but Survivor is one of them. Like we, we really love it. And um, I mean, if I'm watching Survivor, they talk about how important it is and I want to throw open my mouth. But when you call it a guilty pleasure, I also am like, well, it's not really a guilty pleasure. So anyway. I like it. Well, here's what got my attention uh, this past week. So the number of ethnic minorities mm -hmm. in the cast doubled mm -hmm. at least, 
right? Mm-hmm. Normally you have maybe two, I think maybe sometimes three African-Americans in the cast. Uh, this time, just the, the number of people of color um, it was noticeable from the start. I mean, assuming that there are some people listening who don't know the size of a survivor cast, we should say it's usually, they start with what, 20? At at least 20 20 people. 21 or 22. And Mm -hmm. so like three of them might might be black or. And also there's often one gay person, right? One openly Mm -hmm. gay person. Mm -hmm. Well, this season, lots of people of color, more than one person that's a member of the LBGTQ community. And um, my mother and I, I don't watch this show as much anymore, but um, we used to watch the show Big Brother also on CBS quite a bit. Now that's trash. (laughs) Well, that, okay, well. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a line. I'm saying the line is in the wrong place, but it should definitely be, yeah. So here, here's what's interesting. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna build a bridge here to Survivor. So this past summer, um, with with Big Brother, Big Brother, there were four African Americans in the Big Brother house, and they decided to form an alliance called the Cookout. And you they just, were... of course, Sorry, the Cookout. Yeah. Okay. And they decided, listen, it's gonna be us in the final four, right? And they they did it and white people online lost their minds because <laughs> they weren't invited to the cookout this this Literally. is That's this awesome. is this is reverse racism this is i mean how terrible are these people right so here's the bridge to survivor often in survivor not all the time but often um you know black people go pretty early um and often a uh, a cast member is trying to walk this line. You don't want to be the angry black man or the angry black woman. You want to um, pull your share of the weight of work because you don't want to be labeled as lazy, whatever, all those stereotypes. Well, now with the number of people of color um, and the number of people in the LGBTQ community on the cast, it's very interesting. I was scrolling through YouTube and there's a former cast member, well-known, and he responded to the first night by saying, uh, well, his, the title of his video was, I don't like politics in my survivor. And I thought it's very interesting when it is clearly the number advantages, the, the number advantage for white people, it's just assumed that's the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. When the playing field is even or there are more people of color, automatically there's a sense of this isn't fair. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, Jeff, the host, said to the cast at the beginning, um, you know, for 40 seasons, I've called people into challenges by saying, come on in, guys. It's like, I'm I'm uncomfortable with that. Let's let's talk about changing it. And at first, no one wanted to change it. And then someone spoke up and says, you know what? As a member of the LBGTQ community, I'm uncomfortable with guys. Let's do something else. And they changed it. And people are really losing their minds over that change. Like, oh, now politics has creeped in as if Survivor were this pure um, uh, game. None of the prejudices um, 
racism, sexism of actual life ever creeped into it until now? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's really interesting. Um, and I think you're right to point it out that when someone says, oh, this shouldn't be political, it's usually always a white person. And what they mean by shouldn't be political is it shouldn't be changed, right? Like it should stay the way it was. Because I had the advantage. Correct. And it should stay the way that it was when I would, way, the way that is quote, normal uh, or, or unpolitical, which is sort of, you know, the status quo. And I, I think that's really interesting as, as if the status quo or the, um, the, the previous iteration of whatever it was, was this untouched, you know, organic, spontaneous arrangement of events or people when the reality is we know that, um, you know, that that's not, that has never been the case. And I, you know, I have a, a friend, um, Justin Perry, I mean, he, he is always, you know, doing a lot of, um, public speaking and, you know, commenting on different things that happen. And, and he addresses that specifically. It's just like, everything is political. There's no, there's nothing that isn't political. So what you can say is when people say, I don't like politics, what they're really saying is I don't want anything to change. And so they, they label any advocacy for change as political. And they say, well, I don't want, I don't want to be involved in politics. I mean, the reality is no matter what, we are all taking what would be labeled political stances all day, every day in every arena of our life, because you can't not, you are either working to shift and change reality, or you are working to control and maintain reality. And both of those things um, have, have an agenda. So um, I do think it's interesting. I, what I find, um, well, no. let me note also that the first person voted out was a black man, right? So, well, but that that speaks to part of the fears of white people. I gotta make people. it political. <laughs> I don't even see color. You don't see color. I don't see color. <laughs> well, part of the fears of white people is that, oh no, if people of color get in power, they're going to do to us what was done to them. It's like, nope. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, whatever. I'm not going to talk survivor strategy on the record <laughs> with you on this podcast, this semi-professional podcast, because it's already embarrassing to admit how much I pay attention to this. But, you know, one thing that I do think is really interesting about this show is, you know, it's just, it is human behavior. And so Absolutely. it is interesting to watch what people do when they are strategizing and how are they building community and what leadership looks like and how they're trying to influence slash manipulate one another like that. I'm sorry, I can't pretend that I'm not interested in that because I, because I am. Um, and so you were saying, and I interrupted you. Oh, I don't, uh, I don't know, but nothing. Uh, it's probably something it's, profound and deep. Uh, it's and on now. Thanks a lot. World changing. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. 
well, yeah, Survivor's Back, we watched um, with our children. <laughs> so it's a Murphy family favorite. We, we all, and, and Colin and I laugh because our kids, like they know everybody's name and they can like talk back about previous seasons. And they're like, do you remember when so-and-so did such and such? And we were like, no, absolutely not. So it's, it's weird to watch with them because you just realize that my brain is full and it's not really inputting any new information, but yes, we, we really enjoy it. And you get a lot of sort of, you get to have really interesting object, less moral reasoning uh, conversations with your kids when you, when you watch Survivor with them. So it's good. I recommend it. So ask me what I'm thinking about. Oh yes. What are you thinking about? <laughs> We're so smooth. <laughs> Speaking of brains not working properly. So smooth. Um, so I am looking at um, a book that I've had for a little while, which is the um, speeches of Paul Farmer um, that are gathered in a volume called To Repair the World, which is the English version of that Hebrew phrase, um, tikkun olam. And um, I really um, just find Paul Farmer to be this um, I, I I don't think that he would identify as a person of faith, although I know that he was raised in the Catholic tradition. And I think it is interesting, I mean, kind of to the point of what we were saying earlier, how there are some people who absolutely do not self-identify with Jesus. And yet I look at their lives and the way they move through the world, and I find them to be much more closely aligned to the Jesus way than I mean, than many people, including myself. And so Paul Farmer is a, um, a doctor and an anthropologist and um, is, is part of, um, and has really spent his whole adult life in, in Haiti and in, I mean, and in the US, but he, he lives in Haiti and, and is really um, does public health work. And um, from a very early age, kind of walked into, I mean, unlike me walking into college and just being like, okay, tell me what's good. <laughs> I believe you. I mean, he, he walked in just completely questioning the unquestionable assumptions of what public health looks like, which is essentially that there's a huge disparity between what um, healthcare resources are available to poor people versus rich people, right? And so there are people I mean, the institutions that do global health have very explicit formulas where they work out the cost effectiveness of providing treatment of different diseases and, um, you know, and, and say, you know, for example, drug resistant tuberculosis will be treated in the United States, but it won't be treated in Haiti. And, and Paul Farmer, you know, walked into this system as a doctor and, and said, you know, I, I, like all doctors, took this oath. And so I question this assumption that we all operate under that, that, um, that somehow it's okay for a person with a disease, a treatable disease in the global south that we just let them die. But if they're in the global north, we treat them. When we know as scientists 
the actual disease and the actual drug interaction. I mean, it's not, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it is. Um, and so he, and so he was a really, um, you know, and, and he started out from the beginning doing work that he wasn't, that nobody asked him to do, that no one gave him the authority to do, you know, questioning the foundational assumptions of the major um, public health providers in the world. And, you know, he, you know, he's along the way now, you know, gotten a MacArthur Genius Award and has, you know, um, foundational support of his own and people have come to recognize him, but he's also just this really hated figure because I mean, you know, he, he's like Jesus walking into the temple and overturning tables and just being like, no, all of this is a construct and it's deeply unjust and it's a violation of the Hippocratic oath and I'm not going along with it. Um, and so I'm, I'm reading, um, his essays and it's just interesting, um, that when I read them, I, you know, what I find is this deep um, continuity with the voices of the prophets um, of, of people just coming in and saying, you know, I know that orthodox understanding and authorities and institutions um, function as though the way the world is, is the only way it could be and it's nobody's fault but it's not true, <laughs> you know, like we're all um, operating under this mass delusion that that absolves us of any responsibility. Um, and, he, you know, he, he has these, um, you know, con ways of thinking that he'll talk about, like, um, he'll, he'll talk about um, the, the uh, like the violence of, um, like basically the violence that comes from war and then structural violence, right? And so there would be people who would say like, yes, we need to address the violence that comes along with war or crime, but but the violence that comes along from the structures that we've set up, we just sort of accept as inevitable. So that if for say certain amount of children die because landmines are seeded in a country, then we need to come together as a global community and stop landmines from happening. But if a certain amount of children die every year because of unequal distribution of resources, well, that's just the way it is. And that, but I mean, you know, the children are equally dead, right? And so he just is sort of um, saying, you know, has built a career over saying these prophetic things that are, you know, that make people hate you. Um, and I particularly, I mean, as, as I'm thinking about the text that we're going to preach this week, um, you know, one of the phrases that he uses a lot, um, he just talks about soul anesthesia and that's what he really, um, sees the function of these, um, of these assumptions that we all agree to, right? That, so we'll just say like, well, we don't have enough resources to treat people with stage four tuberculosis in the global South. So we, we just don't, and there's nothing we can do about it. So we're just gonna triage and try to, you know, prevent people from catching tuberculosis or, or treat the tuberculosis that responds to drug, but, you know, drug resistant tuberculosis, like we just don't have the resources to fix that. And he's saying like, no, 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 there's a billion dollar industry to make Halloween costumes for pets. 
So let's not say we don't have the resources. Let's tell the truth, right? We do have the resources. We just choose not to spend them that way. And I, you know, this this person who's being honest and he talks about like all of these, um, these assumptions that we don't question that support the status quo and support, you know, the, the institutions that are currently have a lot of power and often are training grounds and are, you know, um, formative in educational institutions, you know, all of these assumptions that sort of say the world, the way the world is, is tragic and we can acknowledge the, the evil of it and we can grieve the brutality of it, but, but it is the way it is and there's nothing we can do about it. And he talks about that being soul anesthesia, that that's just something, these are ideas that we administer to our souls to allow us to numb ourselves from the pain of the way the world is. And just talking about how, you know, there's a time and place for anesthesia um, and, um, you know, a medical need for anesthesia in some places, but, but not in this, that we, you know, we have to be a people who at the very least will just tell the truth about the fact that, well, sure, we have enough resources to um, house everyone, in our country. We just choose to use our resources to do other things, right? And the first step towards making a different choice is acknowledging that we are making a choice, right? And that is, um, you know, and so I think we, um, I mean, we'll transition to talking about preaching, but we're getting ready to start this new sermon series on servant life and how we really need to recapture this fundamental revelation about who Jesus is, that Jesus is first and foremost a servant and calls us to a life of service. Um, and, and then what we are in service to is the God who is redeeming and repairing the world. And so, um, having having that understanding that our faith isn't given to us so that we can numb ourselves to the suffering of the people who are in the world and it isn't given to us so that we can just not feel so bad about the brutal violence and pain of existence now and it isn't given to us as a reward or a ticket into heaven although i believe in eternal life secured through Jesus, but that we are given faith in Jesus so that we can see what God is doing in the world. And so that we can serve what God is doing in the same way that Jesus served what God is doing, which is a life of laying down privilege and advantage and leveraging it for the sake, not of the worthy, but of the unworthy and having as our goal, not what seems possible or desirable to the culture we live in now, but having as our vision and our imagination, the, the world as it was created to be. So a world of shalom, a world of mutual interdependent flourishing. And that is something that like, we're just, our Christian imaginations have been so impoverished by the culture that 
we don't know who we are. We don't know who God is. And we don't know or understand the work that God is doing in the world. So we can't get on, on board with it. And I just think it's funny that I find Paul Farmer to be such a more compelling um, and inspiring advocate for the kingdom of God than I do, I mean, almost any preacher I know. Well, our Christianity has been shaped by a consumer culture that says the cost, the customer is always right. And we see ourselves in the body of Christ as the customer. And so the ministry of the church seeks to serve our preferences, our comfort, our likes, our dislikes. And um, we have just about lost this idea of servanthood, of humility, of voluntary suffering for the sake of others. And when we do think about servanthood, it's often only within the context of our congregation. So I will serve sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so, but to turn outward to see the body of Christ, (laughs) highlight, bold print, body of Christ, the church, as the um, people who exist to serve the neighborhood that surrounds it, Jesus washing the feet of the the neighborhood. Yeah, that's, and I, that's a hard shift. And I think you know we're looking at this Philippians two passage this week, both of us as sort of the the emblematic revelation. If we talk about servant life, like what is that? Well, look at this passage. I think it, it's like what two one to eleven, I think, and. Mm-hmm. Um, so you should read it, (laughs) whoever you are, you should read it. But this idea of Jesus emptying himself out and taking on the form of a servant and being obedient, uh, to God to even to the point of death and death on a cross. And I think part of what we, what is, what makes that good news, (laughs) um, And what I think we often miss, and I think there's just been a lot of really bad substitutionary atonement theology that has really reduced that choice of Jesus's like a, like a test, like, like God is some kind of abusive boyfriend saying like, let me see if you love me enough. Like, let me, you know, prove your love to me. And if you prove it to me adequately enough, then I will reward you. Like, that's not what's happening. Like what we see in Jesus is Jesus's um, knowledge and trust in the goodness of God being so real (laughs) that when God gives Jesus this cup of suffering to drink, that when God says, you know, this is the way, you know, I will glorify you on the cross, not on the throne, that Jesus, even though in his humanity, you know, uh, is, is not excited about that, like is not looking forward to the pain and, and the vulnerability and has the real, you know, fear and probably I think even humiliation that comes along with it. Um, but Jesus's confidence in the goodness of God is so extreme that he's unwavering even to the point of death on a cross. And, and the point of that, the good news in that for me 
is that it is this revelation that that is what God is doing, redeeming the world, starting with, you know, not the outer edges, not the almost perfect and boosting it over the top, but the very heart of evil and depravity, God is absorbing and transforming into a vehicle of salvation. So the very tool that pierced the body of the savior of the world becomes through the glory of God forever, a tool, not of death, but of salvation, you know, not of judgment, but of forgiveness, right? And to say that what we see on the cross is the way that God is redeeming the world and what we see in Jesus and what we get when we get the spirit of Jesus is the ability beyond ourselves to trust and be faithful um, in the way that Jesus was. And again, it's not that we got to do this, you know, suffer now and reward later. It's not like some really bad spin class that you feel like crap, but then you get to go eat guilt for your French fries later on. It's not, you know, that we have to prove to God that we really, really love God. It's none of that. It is, we are allowing Jesus to lead us into the heart of evil because it's at the very heart of evil that God's power is revealed to be triumphant. But that, you know, I, I think the servanthood is like, Jesus isn't serving God because he has to. Jesus is serving God because he wants to. And that's what I want to do a shift in my own heart and in, in the culture of our congregation is like, we don't serve God because it's a test or a trap or to prove our worthiness, we authentically serve God because we've looked around and seen this is the way of life and it's an honor and a privilege. And that's why in that passage right before this, and this passage starts out with a therefore, and the passage right before that is, is Paul saying, hey, you've been given grace, not just to believe in Jesus, but also to suffer for Jesus. And that, that idea of like a Christian church for us is all about like, well, yeah, I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. I believe. Do you believe? I believe. Let's believe more. Let's believe harder. Let's believe, believe, believe. And the gospel or, or the New Testament is very clear about saying like, yes, believe that is part of it, but also suffering is part of it. And we don't talk about that because, you know, it doesn't market test well, but it is, it's right there in the text. And, you know, the real news is suffering is not an option in the human experience. So it's not like Christians have to suffer for Jesus, but nobody else does. Like, no, 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 we are all suffering, living in this broken world. What we have in Jesus is a way that our suffering can be part, can be transformed and be part of the redemptive purposes of God in the world. Um, but it's not like, well, if I worshiped Marduk, then I wouldn't have to suffer. Like, no, 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 you're suffering no matter what. The question is, what do you suffer for? And the and the revelation of Jesus is, oh, this is a God who, who is worth suffering for because my sacrifices through the grace of God would be part of the salvation and the transformation of Shalom and the reclaiming of all creation. So there, do you see how I just did what I'm thinking about? and what I'm preaching about. So smooth. I'm excited. It's smooth. Yeah, we love to quote that verse um, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we focus on, you know, just believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. The truth. Is Jesus your truth? Jesus has to be your truth. But we fail to walk in his way 
Mm-hmm. And that's what the text is calling us to walk in this way of humility and voluntary suffering. And servant life, right? Yes. And this idea that like Jesus was a servant. And so if Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, and you know, we talk about Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but most of us just mean Savior. <laughs> because if I say that someone is my Lord, then my Lord is a person who has the authority to tell me what to do, right? And so if Jesus is my Lord and my Lord is a servant, then guess what I'm going to be? I'm going to be a servant too. And if I don't want to be a servant, then Jesus is not my Lord. And we just need to get honest about that. And if we despise the idea of being servants, then we despise Jesus. And we don't even just get to serve the people that we love or the people who love us back or the people who are worthy because Jesus did not serve only the people he loved or only the people who didn't waste it. And only the, I mean, like Jesus, the heart of Jesus's serving is death on a cross and crying out, father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. So if you're only willing to serve people who deserve it or people who are worthy, then you also are Jesus is not your truth or your way. Mm. And like, don't at me. I didn't write the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) So you want any big last words about what we're preaching about this week? Well, what is coming to my mind is this um, whole idea of humility, that it is just required to be a servant and I think I'm going to spend some time looking at humility and servanthood in light of seeking to be a multi-ethnic family, that if we are truly going to be a multi-ethnic family, that, that what is required is humility. Because what humility does, humility in serving builds trust. And if you don't get to that place, you'll have people who look different in the same space under the same roof, but you won't build those relational connections that you just got to have because there's going to come a time when we misunderstand each other. And if we're not serving in humility, then It'll be the, the, the bonds, the relational bonds will be so weak that it could just quickly fall apart. Well, and I would go even further. I mean, you'd say there's going to, I mean, you say, and I agree, like there are going to be times when we misunderstand each other. So like we think, you know, person A did something hurtful or hateful to us. And that's because we misunderstand them. There are also going to be times when we don't misunderstand, Right. Like when person A does something hurtful or hateful to us and we absolutely understand. And the reality is person A is a beloved child of God who is on a journey and not there yet or is at that level of sinfulness or brokenness or immaturity. And I think, um, you know, it's not that we would lie or say that something is okay when it's not okay. But also, Jesus served unworthy people. So there has to be a way where we can sort of say, you know, this behavior is is harmful and unhealthy, and we have to learn 
new patterns and new postures. Um, but this person who's exhibited this harmful or unhealthy behavior, um, who, who might just objectively be unworthy of the love and care that you're giving them, that can be a true statement. And if Jesus is your Lord, Jesus served unworthy people. And that's why like, I'm excited to set that up in this, um, in this sermon, because where we're going in the next weeks are like looking particularly at the stories surrounding Naaman and his servants. And, you know, Naaman was, I mean, whatever, <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> it was written down 6,000 years ago, but Naaman is the Syrian general who gets leprosy and his, um, in, in, is really well served by his servants. And he, um, I mean, the first of his servants who serves him well is, I mean, is his slave, not his servant, is this um, Israelite girl who was captured and enslaved in battle and ends up in Naaman's household and and speaks to her her mistress, Naaman's wife, whatever, her owner, and, you know, hey, I, I know where my master can go to get healing. And like, if you just, you know... I mean, let's just be real. Like that's, that's a whole lot right there. <laughs> um, and I mean, I think that we, we should really not gloss over that, um, that level of love um, that that girl showed. And it is an offensive love because, you know, whatever happened, like, it, it, it is not okay that she is enslaved in his household. Um, but I also think looking at it through the lens of being a Jesus servant, like Jesus served violent, hate-filled people who ultimately killed him and he gave up his life for them. And I'm not saying like, it is offensive. <laughs> like that's what Paul is talking about, that the cross is offensive. And so, you know, I think if we can remove that label of like, yeah, you know, to really understand that if you sign up to be a servant like Jesus, then you are signing up to serve unworthy people. Like that is absolutely it. And if you don't want to serve unworthy people, I mean, I get it. I respect it. I get how dangerous it is and how honestly morally um, ambiguous it can be, but also it's just unquestionably the way of Jesus. So that's going to be fun. To preach that one, she says sarcastically. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm just concentrating on this week. You're already in next week. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think a lot of what happens in conversations about between Christians about what we should do is we just do a lot of judging of who deserves help and who doesn't. And you just, I mean, whatever, if you're talking about you know, who deserves government assistance or who deserves a green card or who deserves, I mean, like we're always trying to um, accurately judge people so that no one gets anything they don't deserve. <laughs> and so, but that's a very American and I would say like a very white supremacy, supremacy um, culture thing, but it is just anathema to the way of Jesus. Jesus is all about helping people who, who don't deserve it. And don't and, deserve it. Like there at the table is giving the, the bread and the cup and saying like, I am 
allowing my body to be broken and my 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 blood to be poured out for redemption and and giving that to everyone at the table including not just the ones who would deny him but the very one who betray him so the idea of like grace for the unworthy foundational so if you're only willing to serve people who deserve it you are not a follower of Jesus which is a scary thing to say, and which is why I'm grateful for the grace of God because many days <laughs> I am none of those things. Anyway, so we're so we're done here. We're done here. <laughs> He's giving me the sign just so everyone knows he literally has signals. Thanks. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to find out more about what God is doing uh, at Derida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A pres.org is their website. They worship at 1030 and you can worship with them or you can uh, worship with them after the fact on their YouTube channel, or you can listen to Yolanda's messages on their podcast on the Podbean website, which is the Derida Church podcast. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, uh, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can worship with us in person or on the live stream at 10 o'clock. If you are in person, you have to wear your mask. You just got to wear your mask over your nose and your mouth because we're not playing. And, um, but it's just as good on the live stream. So, <laughs> and if you, uh, our YouTube channel is, is up and going and you can get the Grow Church podcast on iTunes or Yolanda wants you to know wherever you get your podcast, wherever, ever. <laughs> so thank y'all for listening to us and we will talk to you next week. Bye.